Hi, this is Joey, Back Alley Conversations, your host today, talking about the light of creativity and the psychology of resilience. This is actually a speech that was given by Gail Carl Feldman, PhD. She's a clinical psychologist in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's from the paper she presented at the American Institute of Medical Education Creativity and Madness Conference in Vietnam on March 2007. And I begin. In recent years, I've become aware of a connection between resilience, the ability to overcome difficult life events, and the power of creative self-expression. Two blind men inspired this realization. Two men from two different, different generations, different countries, and different cultures. In both cases, even though their eyes of physical sight had been blinded, both men lived their lives in an expanded realm of sensation, awareness, and confidence, and both made contributions to the world that most of us could never dream of. I'm going to talk about one, and that is Jacques Lasserab. He was born in Paris in 24, 1924. He's the only child of a marvelously wise and loving parents. They were warm, protective, and attentive. When he was eight years old, he was blinded from an accident at school. As he struck his head on the sharp corner of a desk, the arm of the glasses he wore drove deep into the right eye. He lost consciousness. And at the hospital, doctors removed the eye. The retina of the left eye was badly torn and sympathetic. Ophthalmos led to permanent and complete blindness. He spoke of the feeling adults called despair in the days following his surgery. He was trying to look out the things he knew were there and see them in the old way when he could not. It was anguish. And when one day he had a revelation, instead of looking out, he went to a place deeper within. I was aware of a radiance emanating. I could feel light rising, spreading, resting on objects, giving them form, then leaving them. I felt indescribable relief and happiness, so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I found light and joy at the same moment. And from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I've had them, or lost them together. Even every waking hour, and even in my dreams, I lived in a stream of light. I saw the whole world in light, existing through it and because of it. Colors, all the colors of the rainbow also survived. For me, the child who loved to draw and paint, colors made a celebration so unexpected that I spent hours playing with them. Light threw its color on things and on people. The colors were only a game, while light was my whole reason for living. In a few months, my personal world had turned into a painter's studio. Lisa Ram would discover that only one thing would cause him to become blind, to lose sight of color and light. And that was F-E-A-R, fear. He was a brilliant student. He learned Braille, became head of his class, studied languages, literature, art, theater, and philosophy. And on March 12th of 1938, Germany invaded Austria. 13-year-old Jacques listened to the news on the radio and decided he must perfect his German Intuition told him he would play some role in the common conflict. When France fell and the Gestapo entered the scene, Lucy Rand formed his own resistance movement with 52 boys 
between the ages of 17 and 21. He was only 15. Within a year, there were more than 600 young people calling themselves the Volunteers of Liberty. They created, printed, and distributed a newspaper with Lucy Rand able to keep all data, including 1,500 telephone numbers, in his head to avoid incriminating evidence being found on paper. While they were successful at disseminating information, a country in disaster is swarming with traitors. Lucy Rand judged the French Nazis to be more treacherous and sadistic than the Germans. In July of 1943, he was arrested by the Gestapo, held in a cell, and interrogated for 180 days before he began his next nightmare journey to Buchenwald. He survived there for 18 months. Of the 2,000 Frenchmen who entered the camp with him, only 30 survived to be liberated by General Patton. 380,000 men from 12 different countries died in that camp. Several months into his imprisonment, Lucerne lay dying in, in Les Invalides, where there were more dead bodies than living ones. He had dysentery, pleurisy, in a fever of 104 degrees. Lucy Rand said the illness saved him. During the time he was unconscious, he became aware of light like a shimmering wave. He said, I could see it beyond my eyes and my forehead and above my head. It touched me and it filled me to overflowing. I let myself float upon it. I drew my strength from it. Celestial stream. And after that, he was known as the blind fritch man and the man who wouldn't die. And he became a friend and an inspiration to hundreds of men. Because he could speak French and Russian and German and Polish, they all came to him. In the end, there was, no, there was so much despair and many thousands being killed by the SS, he would stand and recite poetry. I learned that poetry is an act, an incantation, a kiss of peace, a medicine. We loved Victor Hugo. Baudelaire also worked on us. But the real winners, the tonics... Those who worked upon us like wine were the poets who sang, I found some in the Middle Ages. There were Villain and Ronsard and Verlaine and Apollinaire and Aragon. They surmounted all obstacles. They spoke from another realm, or rather it was their, their step, the rhythm of their gait, which had nothing in common with our cowering. They flew past and carried us on their wings. All of Lucy Rand's recitations came from his memory, and that poetry was completely lived by us. It nourished the soul. It was the soul which first had to be nourished. He had learned early that those who that could not nourish their souls died very quickly. After the liberation once in the United States, Lucy Rand became a husband, a father, a university professor, and writer. He was a full professor at Western Reserve University teaching on sabbatical at the University of Hawaii in 1971 when he and his wife were killed in an automobile accident. His credo, the two truths he believed in, were, joy does not come from outside. For whatever happens to us, it is within. The second is that light does not come to us from without. Light is in us, even if we have no eyes. Now I want to speak of subject number two. On Christmas Day of 1968, Michael Naranjo was with the 9th Infantry in the Mekong Delta of Vietnam. He was 19 years old. He was a Native American from Taos, Pueblo. We were in a rice field when the Viet Cong opened fire. Six guys were killed immediately. In the movies, they called them men. 
but it's boys who fight wars. Babies, really. Several of us had run off to the right into the jungle where some of the gunfire was coming from. A medic had just been shot trying to get two of the guys. I dropped to my belly two or three times. Every time we stood, someone was shot. I crawled as far as I could and took off my pack. I took out two grenades and threw one. When I looked up only a few yards away, I could see a Viet Cong soldier in a spider hole. I fired, then let go of my rifle with my right hand to reach for another grenade. My sergeant yelled, but I couldn't hear what he was trying to say. He had seen another VC throw a grenade. It rolled right into my right hand. I turned to my right to look as they began to throw it, and it went off. I've written elsewhere about the details of Michael's evacuation in his stay in hospitals, first in Japan and then in the U.S., his grieving process and his fight to become a sculptor are extraordinary examples of psychological resiliency. The first thing he asked for in a hospital was a ball of clay. He began making small figures with his left hand as his right hand was damaged. At the Veterans Hospital for the Blind in Palo Alto, California, he was informed that his intention to become a sculptor again was completely unrealistic. During his rehabilitation, he first refused to make wallets. When he was allowed to attend a woodworking class, he refused to make a bench. He found a small piece of smooth wood and began to carve a bear. I'd always been a sculptor. My mother was a potter, and I grew up fashioning clay figures while she first worked at Santa Clara, then at Talos Pueblo, where we moved when I was nine. My father was a Baptist minister and a skilled carpenter. He built the first Protestant church in any Pueblo. I was raised with the expectation of attending college. Most of my nine brothers and sisters completed college, and some are professionals. But I couldn't tolerate that structure. I attended Highlands University for a while, and even the Institute of American Indian Art in Santa Fe, taking drawing and design and sculpture. I end up back home to where I could be outdoors. Michael told me about his ongoing love for the Taos Mountains, the forest image that filled his eyes as a boy, the fishing trips that resulted in pockets filled with tiny, wriggling, cutthroat trout. A few years ago, he said, I went for a hike in the mountains with a friend. It was a lovely day and my friend could see, but I was the man who knew the way. Both Michael Narando and Jacques de Lausanne had the uncanny ability to move around in the world and know where objects were and even estimate the distance between them and people, buildings, and trees, as well as far off mountain. Michael Narano knew the way to his passion, his art, and he insisted on finding it. Disability is destroyed by doing something you love, something you're excited about, said Michael. Of course it's a challenge. Life is a challenge, a game. If you accept it, though, it's a gift, and the inspiration of the dreams you have can come true. I had a dream. I often have colorful and vivid dreams, a dream that I could see and touch Michelangelo's sculptures. Not too long after that, I was invited to Rome to have an audience with the Pope. Following the papal audience, I was taken for a chapel and allowed to examine the sculpture of Moses. I crawled all over him for about a half an hour or for days, after I would have flashes of feeling the softness of that flesh. Two years later, I went back to Italy and was allowed to see the David. On top of scaffolding, I felt the beauty of the eyes, the tear ducts hiding in the corners, the pupils like hearts. I cried. My dream had come true. I felt the lips so soft you could feel the heart beating and pumping blood to them, the veins in his neck, the tension of the hands. It was amazing to feel the flesh and feelings of a man 18 feet tall. 
Afterward, I had a new life in my hands. I could see twice as much. Being with Michael gives the one sense of being with a holy man, a man who reveres and accepts every aspect of life. Everywhere you look in his house in Santa Fe, his sculptures, with their gleaming bronze or alabaster surfaces, seem to be moving, an eagle being released to fly, a spirit maiden dancing gracefully with feathers in her hands, gray fox skillfully performing the hoop dance, a nude female figure, Joy, extending both hands upward as though greeting the morning sun. Michael's exhibitions, awards, and honors are vast. His sculpture is found in many collections, including those of the Vatican at Rome and the White House in Washington, D.C. My blindness is a gift, he insists. It was given me a new way of life. Always with these two blind men, there is an illusion to inner sight, to seeing. Psychologist Gina Huggins begins her book on resilient adults with the following words. Clinical psychology and psychiatry typically study the dire, the deadly, and the derailing. We admire or envy, but rarely puzzle over dazzling psychological success. Although a lot is known about the genesis of illness and dissolution, the origins of mental health are often ignored. Moreover, even less is known about the organs of healthy loving. She goes on to define resilient adults as those individuals who have surmounted even the most turbulent past in order to love well, work well, struggle well, expect well in the present. Dr. Higgins studied 40 adult subjects clustered around age 40 who were referred to her for their resilience from clinicians in the greater Boston area. In most all cases, the therapist noted that they had puzzled over the considerable mental health of their subjects. All of them had histories of multiple and significant stressors in childhood. Half of the group, in addition to poverty, alcoholism, or mental illness in their family experience, also had a history of repeated physical and or sexual abuse. Not only were these subjects deemed psychologically mature and healthy, they were also chosen because they love well. Each subject had established and sustained a satisfying intimate love relationship for an average of 12 to 18 years. Professors Karen Rivich and Andrew Shad at the University of Pennsylvania define resilience as the capacity to respond in healthy, productive ways when faced with adversity or trauma. They also relate resiliency to self-efficacy or the sense that one is effective in the world and believes in one's own ability to solve problems. Resilient people live with vitality, curiosity, and engagement with the world. They are fully expressed and take responsibility for all aspects of their lives. In a landmark study begun in 1955 by developmental psychologists Amy Warner and Ruth Smith, 698 high-risk children were studied from their parental year until their 13th birthdays. Two out of three of these vulnerable children suffered learning deficits and behavioral problems by the time they were 10. By 18, arrests, pregnancies, and serious mental health problems were common. But there was one child in every three who developed into a confident, accomplished, connected adult. Psychologists of Revigant Shire are among those who have made it their life work to study resilience in children and adults. In the early research, these survivor thrivers were referred to as invulnerables. Revert and Shat found one primary distinguishing characteristic among people who had survived extraordinary stress a positive cognitive style, a way of looking at the world 
and interpreting events that allowed them to maintain a sense of personal strength in spite of assaults on the body, mind, and soul. The researchers discovered seven abilities and the, re the resilient that reflect their cognitive style and lead to successful behaviors. These are 1. Emotion regulation 2. Impulse control 3. Empathy 4. Optimism 5. Causal analysis 6. Self-efficacy and 7. Reaching out The first two emotion regulation and impulse control are closely related. Those who stay calm under pressure will act calm under pressure. They're better able to think clearly, evaluate the situation, and see options. Because their thoughts are free of self-reference and the contamination of false beliefs, they can not only problem-solve under pressure, but they can experience empathy for others involved in the adverse condition. Resilient people are optimistic. They believe that things can change for the better. They have hope for the future and believe that they control the direction of their lives. Compared to pessimists, optimists are physically healthier or less likely to suffer depression, do better in school, or are more pro productive at work. Causal analysis refers to the ability to accurately identify the causes of problems. Researchers have found that resilient people have an explanatory style that reflects cognitive flexibility, and they can identify the significant causes of the adversities they face. They are realists. They do not reflexively blame others, nor do they ruminate about their own mistakes. They channel their energy into looking at the factors they can't control, even as in the cases of Michael Naranjo and Jacques Lesseron, when the only thing that can be controlled is one's emotional integrity. Self-efficacy or faith in our ability to succeed implies confidence and leadership, reaching out and engaging with others, Asking for and giving help, or what we might currently call having a secure attachment style, are all powerful aspects of resilience. When I imagine Jacques Lazarun reciting poetry to men in rags who are barely still alive, I see the power of love and connection through creative self-expression to inspire the will to live. His resilience saved his life and strengthened all of those around him. The good news is that resilience can be taught. Revishitz and Chate have created programs, adaptive learning systems, that have proved successful in teaching what they call real-time resilience. Self-calming methods of controlled breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, and positive imagery, in conjunction with quick change cognitive strategies, make it possible for coping skills to take the place of self-defeating unconscious patterns. Their program has been used in schools and parenting groups and in marriage and counseling in working settings from nonprofit organizations to government departments to Fortune 500 companies. A real-time resilience, quote, exercise works like this. Number one, identify the adversity, adversity, stressor, or the event that's occurred. Number two, look at your beliefs about the event. What do you tell yourself about it? What are the automatic thoughts that come up? Listen to that inner voice that is always making meaning of the world. And often the wrong meaning. Three, look at the consequences. The impact on you of holding those beliefs. It is usually an emotional impact. Begin to analyze and challenge those beliefs so you can come to an acceptance of the experience. I'll give you a small personal example. You also want to start with the small issues before taking on the more significant stressors in your life. I received a call from one of the offices of an insurance plan for which I am a provider 
They asked for a copy of a W-9 form for my federal ID number. I immediately became upset because I'd gone through a lot of paperwork with this company when I'd moved my office location six months earlier. My secretary had responded, then several months later I had responded, and I thought it had been taken care of. And now again, many months later, they asked for the same information. First, I noticed my upset. A simple act of getting a form and putting it in the fax machine is completely overshadowed by my anger. I tell myself I shouldn't have to be bothered in this way. I don't have time for this. My secretary retired last year. The office, office worker requested a form is most likely new and lost the previous paperwork. Why can't, get they, why can't they get their shit together? I've been doing this work for 35 years. Why do I need a number anyway? You get the picture. The event is the request for a piece of paper. My automatic thoughts about that event could go all the way into paranoia if I let them. The consequences are that my relatively peaceful but busy body has now become a tiny tornado of noisy, swirling upset. I'm also losing precious time with this reactive ruminating. I quickly go to the challenge. What's really happening here is about the reasons that have nothing to do with me. An office simply needs the W-9 form. Period. I get the paper. I put it in the fax machine. I then smile at my tendency towards arrogance, and I forgive myself for wanting to be treated like a queen rather than like everyone else. I can then move into my day with greater ease and a healthier mindset. Dr. Suzanne Capaza, a psychologist at the City University of New York, has studied thousands of executives and managers in order to differentiate those who are resilient to stress from those who are more vulnerable. She, like the other researchers, found that the critical factor for resilience is a particular thinking style. A positive thinking style is evident in three areas she calls control, commitment, and challenge. Those who experience better health and low stress to jobs that are rich in stretchers believe they can control and directly influence events that occur in their lives. Resilient people score higher on measurements of engagement or commitment to their work. For them, the job is a source of meaning in their lives. Change is seen as a challenge or an opportunity for growth. In their book, The Power of Resilience, psychologists Roger Brooks and Sam Goldstein echoed the importance of nurturing resilience. Not only can resilience training help the nearly 40 million adult Americans who suffer from depressive and anxiety disorders, it also increases the resistance to stress and lowers chances of developing PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, following a life crisis. Those who write about resilience and extraordinary individuals who lights illustrate the phenomenon credit their usual success to a powerful, supportive relationship, an adult from whom they gathered strength. For Jacques Lesseron, it was his parents who never faltered in their confidence in the son's ability to accomplish anything he chose to take on. For Michael Naranjo, it was his older brother Tito, my best friend, my, bo- my model for unconditional love. Over the 28 years of his marriage, it is Laurie, Michael's wife, who is the sustaining force behind everything. For those whose misfortune was to have parents who were unavailable or even perpetrators of abuse, the task of learning compassion for oneself and others was achieved because of a special caring relationship. And all the research on resilience, compassion, and empathy are cited as driving the motivation to connect with others and to monitor the thoughts and behaviors that would interfere with loving well. Psychiatrist Frederick Flack listed 12 attributes of resilience. One, a strong self-esteem. Two, an independence of thought. Three, a strong network of friends. Four, 
discipline responsibility. Five, ability to recognize and develop one's gifts and talents. Six, open-mindedness. Seven, willingness to dream. Eight, a wide range of interests. Nine, a keen sense of humor. And ten, insight into the feelings of others as well as one's own and ability to communicate them. High tolerance for distress, number 11. Twelve, commitment to life, including a philosophy for meaning and hope, even under the worst of circumstances. Michael Naranjo did not overcome blindness and live happily ever after. He was continually dealt with medical problems, some from his injuries from the explosion in Vietnam, others unrelated. In 1994, he began to suddenly experience horrendous pain in his head, pain that would only abate somewhat if he were lying prone. It took over a year until a physician at the University of California, San Francisco, diagnosed a very rare cyst on his spinal cord, a T3 or T4. Spinal fluid was leaking out into the soft tissue, diminishing the fluid, fluid that would normally float the brain. After spinal surgery, he was pain-free for a few months, and then the headaches began again. He has tried every treatment imaginable, but the pain continues. He can only work now about one-third of the time. Pain or no pain, we will travel and look at art, said Michael. He and Laurie were in Paris just prior to 9-11 on a walking tour of France. They were in the Louvre. Michael looking, feeling, Michelangelo's the slave. It was so exciting. Art fills my life, he said. When I do it, I'm extremely happy. He spoke of his disappointment not being chosen after a long bidding process for a very large art installation. Yes, it was disappointing, he said. It's just one thing that didn't happen. So many other things have. Many more things will. I always think I'm going to win. If I try, if I work at it, I'll win. My job is to find a way around obstacles. There are no problems, just challenges. You find a purpose and you go forth. The whole world is an inspiration. The Dalai Lama wrote in The Art of Living, a pessimistic attitude. I consider that to be the real seed of failure. And Holocaust survivor psychiatrist Viktor Frankl wrote, Everything can be taken away from a man but one thing, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. And finally, Helen Keller said, No pessimist ever discovered the secret of the stars or sailed to an uncharted land or opened a new doorway for the human spirit. For those in the mental health field, the similarities between positive psychology or the psychology of resilience and the methods of cognitive restructuring or cognitive behavioral therapy as developed by Aaron Beck, MD, are immediately apparent. The other giant, if not the originator of this new field, is Martin Seligman, whose work in depression and learned helplessness led him to realize the need for studying per- personal strength and helping children and adults identify their strengths in order to learn optimism and handle negative conditions in life with responsible actions. The study of resilience has expanded the audience for this work from the field of psychology and psychotherapy to apply the usefulness of these teachings to skills development trainings in the workplace for managers and CEOs, also to a thriving new uh, uh, field of life coaching. Men especially tend to be more comfortable and open to concepts of being coached and taking action on coaching. But both genders can be empowered when they are helped to find solutions to problems and personality patterns that allow them to move forward more quickly to accomplish their life goals. It should be remembered that the understanding of resilience evolved from studying people who have overcome sometimes brutal life conditions to become highly effective, creative, and loving human beings. 
These people represent a small percentage of the population of traumatized individuals. The majority of us require supportive help to deal with the impact of negative experiences. Gentle teaching about the naturalness and necessity of grief work and ongoing permission to work through our feelings and be patient in moving toward self-acceptance and coming to terms with change and loss. Any attempt to bypass grief and move quickly into positive thinking will not only most likely fail, but does not honor the pain inherent in loss, nor the courage necessary to reestablish a sense of self and create a new life. Two issues that should not be overlooked include, one, the similarities to cognitive behavioral therapy and the new field life of coaching, and two, the importance of dealing with the impact of trauma and helping people process grief. That positive psychology cannot, <clears throat> should it be used to bypass the, the pain of loss. Light is within us all. The finding that light often takes others to help us along. I hope this podcast today has been helpful. I hope I didn't speak too quickly or read too quickly, but I hope that overall, you know, I've been through so much, and there's the most important thing that's carried me through is, is the person I lost, her love, that of my mother and my grandmother, those that showed me unconditional love, and those that have shown me unconditional love since. And that love is what supports me and helps me get through the tough times. And it's not been an easy time. It's been a very tough time. I suffered post-traumatic stress disorder, and it affected my life. And it still affects it some now and then, but I've learned how to get through it all and and actually, a lot of these things I just presented to you are methods that have helped me. And I stop and I think and evaluate my emotions and look at the cause of them and why I'm acting the way I do. And then I turn around and just change it all. But it takes time to get there. So I hope the best for all of you. And I just want to say today, peace out to you. Thanks for coming to listen to Back Alley Conversations. This is your host, Joey Black. And we'll look forward to hearing and seeing from you again. Bye.